If you have your Bible, you can open to Exodus chapter 29. Before we read, let me try to do a little bit of uh, place setting or uh, context framing. Uh, Last week, we uh, spent a Sunday... uh, in our own Sanctity of Life service, so we were off of our Exodus series. Uh, If your mind is so sharp and agile that you can remember what happened two weeks ago, you will recall that we were in Exodus 28. Exodus 28 largely deals with how the priests were to be dressed or how they were to um, be fitted out, so to speak, for their work of the ministry representing the people to God and God to the people. And as you get to the end of chapter 28, of course, through there, there, are, um, there is all kinds of symbolism and significance to what's going on. The priest bearing, under, uh, bearing the load of the names of the people on his shoulders, uh, not just carrying their weaknesses in, but also carrying, bearing their names over his heart in before the Lord, showing that it's not only the the strength of the priest, but it's also his compassion for them um, that is constantly bringing the attention of the Lord to his people. Uh, The priest himself, in order to serve effectively for the benefit of God's people, was set apart, was said to be holy. Uh, That is, uh, someone separate and distinct from the rest of the nation who was given this unique role and job. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 28, the impression that you would normally have if you had not read ahead was, well, okay, there it is. Uh, the Lord has told them how, how they're to dress, how they're to comport themselves when they go in. Uh, now all that needs to be done is for the priest to get to work and to start to do what God has told them to do. And let's hope that they do it well. Then you come to chapter 29 and you find out that merely having the appearance of a priest or the clothes or, um, I don't know, a sense of gravity about you in and of itself is not sufficient. Even the priest has to be atoned for. So as we read, uh, we're not going to read every verse in this passage. We will read a significant amount of chapter 29, but here's what I want you to consider, and this is part of what we'll do as we work our way through this passage. One, consider that because of the fact that the Lord says to his people in Exodus 19, when when he brings them, he's brought them out of Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai, and remember he says in a very pivotal statement in the book of Exodus and for all of the Old Testament, in fact, He says, you yourselves have seen what I've done among the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings to myself. And then he invites them to enter into a covenant obedience with him and says that as you obey, as you enjoy your covenant relationship with me, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. So part of what goes on in Exodus 28 and 29, or any place where a priest is being described in the Old Testament, is that there is something unique that's being said about the role that that individual minister has. But because of the fact that the nation itself was to be a priestly nation, 
as the people are hearing this instruction, they ought to be taking into their minds and in their hearts that something of what God is doing with this priest is representative of what he intends to do with us. So, like people, like priest, or like priest, like people. But then here's the other side of that coin. Because of the one-to-one relationship between the priest and the people, that they are essentially one and the same, as the people continue to see what it is that the Lord is revealing about their needs to have a priest, to have sacrifices, to have atonement, what they will also begin to be confronted with is the reality that they need something better than what they can provide for themselves. Even the best priest is insufficient for what they truly need. They need a better priest. So consider then as we read what these instructions to the priest say about God's dealings with his people and how it also simultaneously reveals the people's need for a better priest and a better sacrifice. Start with me in 29 verses 1 through 4. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and present them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Then you will bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Skip down a little bit further to verses 10 through 21. You begin to see what the bull and the rams are for. Verse 10, then you shall bring, after you have washed Aaron and his sons to purify them, then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. You will slaughter the bull before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. You will take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and you will pour out all the blood at the base of the altar. You will take all the fat that covers the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and offer them up in smoke on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. You shall also take the one ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall slaughter the ram, and shall take its blood and sprinkle it around on the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into its pieces, and wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and its head. You shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. Then you shall take the other ram. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall slaughter the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the lobes of his son's right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet and sprinkle the rest of the blood around the altar. Let me just pause right there. Putting blood on the earlobe, on the thumb, even on the big toe. What in the world is that about? I, th- I think 
that what that is supposed to signify is that the priests are being sanctified so that they are given ears to hear what the Lord says, right? He's, he's cleansing them so that they can hear rightly what the Lord speaks to them. And then from that, as they hear the word of the Lord and they then begin to carry, to, carry it out, their, what their hands do and where their feet take them are meant to also be purified or sanctified. So in what the priests hear and what they do and where they go, in their role as priest and mediator to the people, they need all of those elements of their lives sanctified and purged by an atoning sacrifice. Verse 21, Then you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on his son's garments with him so he and his garments will be consecrated as well as his sons and his son's garments with him. Skip down to verses 35 through 37. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. You shall ordain them through seven days. The seven days symbolic of the fact that it is going to be a complete work of sanctification. Each day... You shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement, and you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy, and whatever touches the altar will be holy. Verse 38. Now that atonement has been made for the priest and the altar, now he can get to his work. Here is what his work entails at the very beginning. Verse 38, now this is what you shall offer on the altar, that is what the priest will offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. There shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. It will be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there and here is where all of this is pointing to here's what it's all building up to the sanctifying the purifying of the priest the continual offerings that are offered morning and night is all for this in verse 43 verses 43 through 46 I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it will be consecrated by my glory I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord even to us. Let's pray. Father, would you impress upon us now, we ask through the authority of your word, How essential it is that you have a people who have been purified and sanctified for your possession. 
And then, Father, be good and gracious that even as we are confronted with the demands of a holy and righteous God, comfort us by the realization that all that you have required of your people, you yourself have provided. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Three things that we want to try to do here as we're going through this chapter. Number one, we want to take note of the fact that what Exodus 29 is revealing, among other things, but at least this much, number one, that God's people need a holy priest. Number two, that God's people need a lasting sacrifice. And number three, God gives his people what they need so that we may enjoy him. God's people need a holy priest. They need a lasting sacrifice. And all that we need, God gives so that we can enjoy him. So number one, the need for a holy priest. One of the things that stands out, as we've already alluded to, is that if you were to read chapter 28, not knowing what comes in chapter 29, because of the fact that the, uh, the priest is given his uniform, you would naturally, particularly in our day and age and in our culture and context, we would think, well, if you've given the man his uniform, that means that he's ready to go and start doing his job. He'll, he'll work it out. He'll do what needs to be done. The Lord says, no, no. In chapter 28, the Lord chooses the ones who will serve him as priests. And then he calls them. He chooses Aaron and his sons. And then he calls and tells Moses, bring Aaron and his sons to me. If in chapter 28 we're seeing in part that God chooses and calls his priests, what we're seeing in chapter 29 is that God also then needs to consecrate his priests. Consecrate sort of one of those big highfalutin theological words, right? Highfalutin, that's a little southernese for us, right? Highfalutin theological words. To consecrate something in this context means to make it holy or to set it apart. All right, it actually comes from the same, the same root word or the same root that means to sanctify or to be holy. So anytime that you read, if your version uses the word consecrate in this context, you can read that as something like, this is being done to set them apart or to set them apart in holiness. Because of the fact that God will not allow these priests to work or to serve until they are consecrated, until they are made holy. We are being reminded of the fact that no matter what kind of a calling, no matter what kind of an appearance, no matter what kind of labor we may endeavor to do, unless the Lord makes us fitting and appropriate for that labor, everything else means nothing. All the nice clothes, everything that sets the priest apart from all the other people, the high call and responsibility that he has to serve as a representative to God, 
on behalf of the people and to the people on behalf of, of God, none of that can happen unless God purifies and purges that priest. It's not, in other words, it's not the work of the priest that will make him holy. It is God who will make the priest holy so that he can do the work. Do you get that? That means something for us. Right? Depending on where you fall, on sort of the, the spiritual spectrum, you may be tempted to think that because of the fact that God has, has called you and redeemed you and saved you and, and now you're working and you're serving him, that, that what sets you apart, what makes you different is the work that you do. You hear that? The work that you do sets you apart. That's not true. What sets you apart is not the work that you do for God, but the work that God effects on you. No amount of work, no amount of labor will ever make you holy and acceptable to God. The only way that you will be holy and acceptable and fit to actually do his work is if God, after calling you, then consecrates you. Right, that works against pride. On the other end of the spectrum, you have some Christians that, that battle with, um, what, perhaps succumbing to the little whispers or the lies of the enemy, right? Yes, you may be one of God's children. Yes, you may be one of God's people. Yes, he may want you to serve him in your workplace, in your family, in whatever else, but... Do you know how dirty you are? Who are you to talk about purity in light of your history? Who are you to talk about devotion to Christ when you've been so half-hearted and fickle? Do you hear that? That those two brothers who appear to be at opposite ends of the spectrum, one, reveling in spiritual pride, one, wallowing in spiritual inadequacy, both have the same root problem. It looks like they're miles apart and worlds away from each other. They both have the same root problem. They think that what qualifies them is their work. And it doesn't. What qualifies the priest to serve in God's presence, what qualifies the priest to minister to his other brothers and sisters is not his effort, it's not his attire, it's not his speech. Fundamentally, at the root of it all, the, what makes him qualified is the purifying work of a holy God.
That is no different today. There's not a single one of us in this room who are qualified or who are fit to serve the Lord because we are just a cut above. Because we're more serious. Because we're more devoted. If any of us are in a position to serve the Lord and to be of any kind of good or benefit to one another, it's because God has made us that way. But then this, this introduces also another unsettling realization. Right? On the one hand, the, the priest is being singled out for work that only he can do for God on behalf of the people. And yet some of the things that come up in this chapter make it very evident that although the priest has a unique job that he's going to do on behalf of the nation, the priest really is not so different from all the other people that he serves. So look, for example, in Exodus 24, 8. Just go back a couple pages. In Exodus 24, 8, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. A blood sacrifice was made. Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. Now turn back to chapter 29 and look at verse 21. Then you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and his son's garments with him so that they will be consecrated. The people have the blood sprinkled on them, indicating that it's not they who keep themselves in covenant or in good standing with God. It's the sacrifice that God has provided for them that covers their sin, that atones for that. In a microcosm of that act, you have the same thing going on here with the priests. They have to be sprinkled clean with a sacrifice with atonement that comes by way of blood. So although the priest may have a different job title or a different vocation from the rest of the people, strip all that away and you find out that the priest is no different from the people that he serves, and the people are exactly the same as the priest. That seems encouraging for a while until you begin to think more carefully about what we are like. I need a priest to get me close to God. But the priest who's supposed to bring me into fellowship with God or bring me close to God, he's just like me. That's not going to work. Me is the problem. I don't need someone like me. I need someone unlike me to get me to God. Because if he's anything like me, I don't know how long this is going to last. All it takes is one bad day for this priest to go up and to wreck the whole 
thing. And now what sounds like this beautiful kumbaya moment of solidarity, me and the priest, we're one and the same, we understand each other, now is very unsettling. God's people need a priest, but they need a better priest than what they can find themselves. So turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And look with me at verses 26 through 28. For it was fitting for us, or it was appropriate for us, we might say, to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Look back up at verse 26. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Listen, brothers and sisters, be very, very careful about taking the beauty and the perfection of Christ and diminishing it by making his glory something that seems to be a lesser glory that we can be comfortable with. Here's what I mean by that. On the one hand, the old former priest who are to bridge that gap between God and his people could identify with the people that they served. But what the people need is something that's far more lasting and far more permanent. They need a different kind of priest. But so long as the only priest that was available was a priest that came from them, they were always going to have a priest who was sinful and corrupt just like they were, who needed to be atoned for just like all the rest of us. Hebrews says that one of the reasons that God has been good and gracious to his people is that he has given us a high priest who on the one hand is like us but is also not like us. He has been tempted in every way as we are, like, yet without sin, unlike Listen, there's a tendency today to want to make Jesus more like me to, so that I can feel like I have a, a common bond or real solidarity with Jesus, right? 
I, I want Jesus in his weakness and compassion to be, uh, or in his, in his humility and his compassion to be weak and suffering and commiserating with me. People, you don't want a savior who can only commiserate with you. You don't. You want a savior who can rescue you. If I get sick at home, I want to be sick on my own. You know why that is? Because if my wife is sick at the same time, she's not gonna be able to care for me the way that I need to be cared for or the way that I want to be cared for. <laughs> right? Because Jesus does not have his own sin to deal with, because he is undefiled, because in one sense he is separate from sinners, that means that when sinners go and call to him for help, all of his motion, all of his energy is directed to the sinner, not to himself. That's why Hebrews says that he had to offer up sacrifice. The old priest had to offer up sacrifices first for himself, then for the people. I don't want or need that kind of priest. I don't need a priest who has his own trouble. I got plenty of trouble. I need a priest who's gonna get me out of that trouble. I need something better than Exodus 29. I need Jesus. And so God in his grace gives us in his word a picture of that reality exposing our need that yes we do need someone to bring us to God and yet if that bringing to God is going to be anything permanent and lasting it's gonna have to be someone to get me to God that is not like me Jesus number two not only do they need a truly holy priest, they also need a lasting sacrifice. By the time they go through a seven-day process of being purified, of being made holy, of being declared right and able now to enter into God's presence to do the work for the people, what is that work going to look like? Skip down towards the latter part of the chapter, verses 38 through 42. Once everything has been set up, the priest, the altar, everything else, here's what work on behalf of the priest or by the priest on behalf of the people, here's what it's going to look like in part. This is what you shall offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs, each day continuously. You're going to offer one in the morning, and you're going to offer one at night. How long are you going to do this for? Verse 42. How long will you continue to do this? A week? A month? A year? throughout your generations. Every single day, 
begins and ends the exact same way. With death and with fire consuming a sacrifice for sin. Every single day. The priest wakes up in the morning. The very first thing that he will do when he has prepared himself to enter into the tabernacle or later into the temple, the very first thing that he will do is slaughter a lamb. He will get bloody. And then he will put that lamb on the altar to be burned and consumed as a whole offering to the Lord to atone for the sins of the people, to make it possible for them to continue to do whatever else the rest of the day holds. And at the end of the day, when the sun is going down, before they leave, they will close the day the exact same way. They will offer another sacrifice. It doesn't matter how many other sacrifices you've offered from morning until evening. You're going to close out your day shedding more blood and offering another lamb on the altar. It's as if God is indicating to his people that the fire of his righteous indignation over sin never goes out. Morning and evening, day after day, month after month, year after year, generation after generation, gallons and gallons of blood are being spilt because that is what is necessary to keep God's people in fellowship with him. Sinful people in fellowship with a holy God. You don't need to turn there. Just, just listen, though, to verses like this. Psalm 7, verse 11 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. That's talking probably about the way that God stands opposed to the wicked. Here is Moses in Psalm 90 talking about the reality of God's anger towards sin experienced by his own people. Psalm 90, verses 7 and 8. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's a man who's writing from experience that says, I know that God has made atonement available through these sacrifices. But you know what? The sacrifices are only as good as the people who are bringing them, if they bring them at all. We need something better. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. Start with me in verse 11. See if you don't hear Exodus 29 in this description. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering 
time after time, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. All of our sin, and by that we need to say very clearly, not just the sin that can be seen, or heard. The sin that you hold in those deep, dark places in your heart and mind that you would never share with anyone else. You could offer a bloody sacrifice at morning and at night, every day of your life, and it would never, ever, pay for your sin. It would never give you the right and the privilege to call God your God and your Father. You would never be able to give enough or pay enough even if that kind of relationship and standing were given to you, you would never be able to pay enough or give enough to be able to maintain that relationship. And that is what God has done for us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He has taken all of that weight, all of that burden, he has placed it on himself, and now the fires of God's holy and righteous wrath directed rightly to our sin has been extinguished once and for all. On my worst day, I am no less secure than I am on my very best day because one perfect eternal sacrifice has sanctified me and you for all time. What the law could not do, weak as it was through our flesh, God did. And then number three. God's people need a holy priest. He's providing at least a shadow of that in Exodus 29, but he gives us the real substance in Christ. God's people need a lasting sacrifice, again, a shadow of what we truly need in Exodus 29, but the real substance, the real meaningful sacrifice, not coming until the offering up or the sacrifice of Christ's own body. All of this, though, all of this, gloriously true as it is, is not the end goal. The need for a priest the need for a sacrifice, 
that will remain and that will last is all to get us to verses 43 and 46. Because of the priest making atonement for the people, satisfying God's justice concerning sin, providing purification for himself and for the people, because of that, in Exodus 29, the Lord says, I will meet with the sons of Israel, and it will be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. All of this, the reason that he has given us Christ and the sacrifice that Christ gives in his own body is all for the unbelievable gift and privilege of dwelling with God. All the benefits and the blessings that we enjoy right now in this present life through Christ, all of that, those are gifts, those are blessings. Don't get me wrong. That's not ultimately what we're looking for. Right? We don't merely want forgiveness. We want God. At the end of the day, what really sets God's people apart, what makes God's people distinct as God's people is God. When we come together and gather on a Sunday morning, part of what we're doing is that we're saying, what makes us different from who we used to be or what makes us different from anyone who is outside of Christ is the fact that when we gather together, we're saying, we're confessing that we are gathering because not only has God called us to gather together, but God himself is in our midst when we gather together. That's what makes this whole thing that we do on Sunday worth doing. It's what makes the Christian life worth living because in all of the labor, in all of the frustration, in all of the heartache, in all of the sorrow, we're being promised over and over and over again. But you're going to see God. What your heart longs for even though you may not even be able to articulate it, even though you attribute some of these longings to other people or other things, what your heart truly longs for, what you desperately want is gonna be given to you. God will dwell with his people so that the climax of the book of Revelation, the end of the New Testament, is the picture of a heavenly Jerusalem coming down and God saying, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God is now among men. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is it. This is what we've waited for. We also say just one other thing briefly in this last part. It's very odd, very interesting 
that in verse 46, God says, they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. For the sake of time, let me just say it this way. One of the ways that God affirms or confirms his work of redemption for his people is by his presence. Which means, Christian, that perhaps more important than you being able to point back to a date and time to say, this is when I walked an aisle, or this is when I prayed a prayer, or this is when I came to understand it, right? What may be, in fact, more important is the question, do you know and are you experiencing the presence of God today? Because if you have God today, that validates your claim to have been redeemed by the Lord previously. Kids, if you're sitting in this room and your ears, as you hear your parents teach you and as you hear guys preach in the service or teach in Sunday school, and you hear people inviting you to come to Jesus and to pray for forgiveness, all of those things are good and right. The very best thing in the world that you could ever get is forgiveness from Jesus. But the reason that forgiveness is so good, kids, is because once you have forgiveness, you get to live with God. And you want to enjoy God starting now and for the rest of your life. Stay in Exodus 29 as we turn our attention to the table. Look back at verses 31 through 33. Exodus 29, 31 through 33. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Thus, they will eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But a layman shall not eat them because they are holy. They will eat the sacrifice that was used for their atonement. Does that sound like the Lord's Supper at all? Jesus in the upper room with his disciples says, this bread is my body, take and eat. This cup is the blood of the new covenant, take and drink. The very sacrifice that is given to us to reconcile us to God is in this symbolic way, the very sacrifice that we are eating. Jesus says in John chapter six, that unless you eat my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in yourself. And we are testifying as we share in this meal today by taking the body and the blood of Christ that the one who gave himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sins is the one who continues to feed us and sustain us even to this day. It is also a reason why we would say without apology 
but with appeal. That this meal is to be shared only by God's people, only by those who have entered into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, who have had their sins washed away, signified by the washing of baptism, and now coming to the table to eat in God's presence, rejoicing over the sacrifice that has been made. If that has not happened for you, if you have not received Christ as your sacrifice for your sin and have not followed him in baptism as a way to signify that, that does not need to hold you off indefinitely. That can be resolved today. Men, if you would come forward, please, to serve the elements.